Welcome to today's broadcast of Practically Political, where pragmatists talk politics. I'm Dave Spencer, and we have another very special guest today. Bill Galston is the Ezra K. Zilka Chair and Senior Fellow in the Brookings Institution's Governance Studies Program. He's also the co-chair of the New Center Project and writes the Politics and Ideas column for the Wall Street Journal. Bill was the deputy assistant to President Clinton for domestic policy from 1993 to 1995, and his most recent book is Anti-Pluralism, the Populist Threat to Liberal Democracy. Bill, welcome to the show. Great to be here. First thing I'd like to talk about are the challenges of covering substantive policy issues when the news cycle is centered on the scandal or crisis of the day. How do you get people to focus on bigger long-term issues in such a noisy, chaotic political environment? You probably can't, at least not in the short term. I would like to believe that as we pivot away from the first two years of this presidency and toward what I expect to be a spirited run for the Democratic presidential nomination, that these issues will receive a fair hearing and a thorough airing, at least on one side of the aisle. And if that happens, we'll then see what happens when someone who has actually waged a campaign of ideas goes up against an incumbent president who has already demonstrated to the American people who he is and what he believes. I read your recent column in the Wall Street Journal, The American Dream Meets a Jolt, with great interest because it's a topic of heart to me, where you talk about how many people have lost the hope that each generation will do better than its predecessor, not only in the U.S., but around the world. And you also connect the anxiety about the future to the kind of nostalgia that fuels the concept of Make America Great Again. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the economic aggregates are very strong. The stock market is even stronger. The question average Americans are asking and (laughs) they're wrestling with is, you know, why in the face of this economic good news, their wages aren't going up more rapidly. Typically, at this point in an expansion, with unemployment below 4%, You'd expect wages growing, say, between 2 and 3% after taking inflation into account. I'm not seeing anything like that. And you have to start wondering whether that is ever going to occur in this economic cycle. And if not, whether, as I believe, it reflects some fundamental structural changes in the U.S. economy. There's no question about the fact that the changing nature of the economy away from manufacturing and towards knowledge work has created a greater dispersion of incomes, has tended to concentrate income more at the top, has made it very, very difficult for people with less than a college degree even to stay even, let alone get ahead. If this is the structure of the new economy, then my argument is that we're going to need actions other than market activities in order to generate rising living standards for average Americans. We can have a good debate as to what those activities should be, but at the very least, the tax code shouldn't make a bad situation worse, which the recently enacted tax cuts, I'm afraid, did. And we may have to focus on the tax code and other devices to supplement the incomes of Americans whose incomes are just treading water. Uh, I mean, it is really remarkable that it wasn't until 2017 
that household incomes for people right in the middle exceeded the levels that they'd reached almost 20 years earlier in 1999. A generation of stagnation is really not what the American dream means, or at least what the American people thought it meant. How would you describe the realities of the American dream? Well, I think if you look at what American people think, there was a survey that just came out. They're feeling better about their lives than they did five years ago, no question about that. But when you ask them whether they expect that their children will live better than they themselves do, only 33% of Americans answer that question in the affirmative. That 3% uh, is a shockingly low number because it's a number that reflects characteristic American confidence in the future, which, despite a recovery that is more than eight years old, appears to be at a very low ebb. People are distinguishing between improvements in the economy in the here and now and their expectations for their children. And that, I think, is a very telling measure of how Americans are actually feeling about the economy right now. Let's talk about the upcoming election. Generic polls show the Democrats' lead growing, but I really don't see the Democratic Party having really learned much from 2016 by defining a platform that is more than just being anti-Trump. At the same time, there's never been a president this unpopular with an economy this good, and not a day goes by that he doesn't seem to undermine his own party's chances. What do you see as the key issues in demographic numbers in the next two months? I guess what I might do is reframe the question. It's only rarely that midterm elections are about single unifying national themes. They're usually more responsive to a myriad of local conditions. This time, that is true with a twist, and that is the figure of President Trump, like the balloon in London, flies over every congressional district. And so... Every single race this time is going to be a combination of a referendum on local circumstances and the incumbent's performance, if there is an incumbent, and what people who are not absolutely wedded to one political party or another think about the president of the United States. The time for a forward-leaning debate about national issues will start the day after the election in November when candidates, I think, will quickly start declaring their intention to run for president. And they will, over the coming months, be forced to clarify the answer to a very fundamental question, namely, why are you running for president? And they're going to have to say what they believe about the condition of the American dream and what can be done to uh, revitalize it. That's true. And I think one area where the president really is making America great again is he's getting so many people revved up and engaged in the process. I think we've gotten complacent about our political system, and it's one of the reasons that things have gotten so bad. You know, complacency and indifference are the enemies of democracy, and the president has just gotten so many people to engage in the process again. that I think that's healthy for the country in the long run. Well, I agree with you there, with, you know, a kind of a footnote, or perhaps a hope or a wish. And that is that the anger that so many people feel understandably, which is now being channeled into negative voting, in effect, can be channeled by the presidential candidates in their debates into 
fervent support for programs of fundamental reform. Turning anger into progress is one of the great challenges of small-D democratic politics. Fanning the flames of anger is something that demagogues do. Uh, turning anger into progress is what real Democrats do. I had Bill Crystal, your co-chair of the New Center Project, on a previous podcast, and we were talking about how, as an estranged Republican, the only way for the country to function again is, I think, if the Democrats ride a blue wave and start holding Republicans accountable because they're not going to do it themselves. And I think it's going to take a couple of losses, as Bob Dole said, to put a close for repair sign on the door and fix it. And so I feel like I'm searching for a place to call the new center, as are many Democrats and independents. Can you tell us about the project's genesis and what exactly you see as the new center of American politics? It's very simple. Bill Crystal, for his adult life, has been a staunch Republican, and for my adult life, I've been a staunch Democrat. We have debated each other more times than we can remember, and we discovered that in our post-election debate uh, in November 2016 that there was nothing left to debate. <laughs> that, you know, you know, it was like a tennis game where you know, both players end up on the same side of the net. So we began to explore the possibility that the reorganization of our nation's policy generated by the outcome of the election of 2016 you know, had created possibilities for new alliances and that perhaps people on the center left had more in common with people on the center-right and vice versa than with anyone else. And so it's that possibility of a new alliance across traditional partisan lines that is a, that's the political underpinning of the new center. It's our view, based not only on these experiences, but also on survey research about some pieces of our programs done subsequently, uh, that have convinced us that there is there is a future for this kind of coalition building if who would like to high elective office are willing to take programs of this sort and talk about the public. I think that's true. And it's interesting because one of the issues, obviously, that divides Republicans and Democrats and where the president has obviously been populist is on trade. And it seems like in the catch-22, as the president puts pressure on both China and Canada, he may have a strong backing of Republican voters, but he also risks putting his own party's congressional candidates, many of whom favor free trade, in a real bind. So how do you see that issue playing out? This is an issue that quite some time now has divided both political parties. And there are reasons for that. The leaders of both political parties have been pursuing for quite some time trade policies that work a lot better in economics textbooks than they do in real life. And I think that leaders in both political parties will have to acknowledge that they ignored the interests and concerns of many millions of Americans who believed, with, I think, some reason, that they had been the victims rather than the beneficiaries of those policies. And I think it's pretty clear now that leaders in both political parties underestimated the impact of China's entrance into global markets on, for example, uh, manufacturing workers in the United States, millions of whom have lost their job as a consequence. So free traders in both political parties now have to ask themselves, what does free trade mean in a world where 
a state-controlled economy. The People's Republic of China has become such a prominent actor. How do we react to that? And I think this is one of the few areas where I disagree with President Trump. I think it was high time that we publicly challenged some of the Chinese policies that have been hurting the country, our country. But unfortunately, the president is using the wrong metric, namely our bilateral trade balance, and he's using the wrong means, namely tariffs, and he's doing it in the wrong way by antagonizing precisely the allies that we'll need in order to put real sustainable pressure on the Chinese government. But it's a policy problem, it's a political problem, it's a political problem for both parties. I will say that survey research indicates that at the grassroots level, Democrats have become much more of a free trade party, and Republicans have become much more of a protections party. And so Republican elites and members of the business community who always supported the Republican Party are now going to have to figure out what their place is in a party whose rank and file has turned protectionist. This is a classic example of where I agree with the president philosophically, but like moving the embassy where he gave up the leverage in Israel, the execution is all wrong. I agree. China is a trade cheat, but we should go after the Bank of China that's been laundering money for North Korea and freeze their assets. It's the same thing with Putin doing these tit-for-tat diplomat expulsions. You know, it was, it was things like the Minitsky Act that threatened the oligarchs. That's, you got to hit these guys where it hurts because otherwise they're just not going to respond. And so I want to also ask, do you think that climate change will continue to be such a backburner issue? Because you just open the window. I think that in the forthcoming presidential campaign, that the Democratic nominee, if he or she is smart, will figure out how to talk about the public everyday dimensions of climate change so it doesn't seem like an elite coastal concern that doesn't affect people in middle America. I think the issue, for example, of sea level rise is now becoming a reality for people in coastal areas around the country. And rising water doesn't respect the distinction between red states and blue states, as the inhabitants of North Carolina and South Carolina are finding out. And climate change wreaks havoc on beaches which are so important for tourism and the quality of life, as the inhabitants of Florida are finding out with this awful red tide supplemented by an equally awful green tide that they're now coping with, these, uh, the warming of the ocean producing algae blooms that wreck beaches. So I do think it will be more of an issue in 2020. Absolutely. And if President Trump you know, continues to pretend that it's just a fake issue made up by political progressives in order to suppress the fossil fuel industry, which is, I think, a fair representation of what he really believes, then I think Republicans will uh, pay a price. Bill, as a pragmatist and also as a stubborn optimist, I always ask my guest one final question. Even in such a dysfunctional and divisive time in national politics, what gives you hope for the future? Well, democracy represents a bet on the common sense of the people. It doesn't mean that people will exercise their common sense every day or indeed every year, that people can go off the rails in one direction or another, but democracy rests 
on the proposition that the people will judge the consequences of their decisions and change course if necessary. And so history in a democracy rarely moves in a straight line. It's a series of choices, evaluations of those choices, adjustments, changes of course if need be. And I am convinced that the vast reservoir of common sense goodwill uh, that has kept this country moving forward for more than two centuries has not run dry. And can I prove that? No. But I will say that centuries of pessimists have gone broke betting against the United States. And I don't think it's going to be different this time. You've been listening to our conversation with Bill Galston, the chair and senior fellow in the Brookings Institution's Governance Studies Program and the author of the weekly Politics and Ideas column for the Wall Street Journal. Bill, thanks so much for appearing on the show, and I hope we can continue our conversations at some point. My pleasure. So that's it for today, folks. I'll see you on our next round of Practically Political, where we go beyond the deluge of everyday news to dive deeper into American politics. I'm Dave Spencer. Have a great week.